This show is part of the RetroZap.com podcast network. You will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Hello, and welcome to Beltway Banthas, a Star Wars podcast live from the hive of scum and villainy, Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Stephen Kent. I'm your other host, Suara Saleh. And today, we're talking workplace politics in the Empire. But first, Suara, after the swamp is drained, we're going to need a new slogan for the show, aren't we? Oh, yeah, Stephen, because there's no corruption at all. Yeah, Trump's going to come in with his kids and his business partners and make it completely clean. We have no problem whatsoever. No problems whatsoever. Yeah. So this will no longer be the uh, the hive of scum and villainy. It's going to be great. Uh, yes, it's going to be great again. Don't forget that part, Stephen. Don't forget that part. Oh, my gosh. It has been such a whirlwind week here in D.C. with... Um, uh, just seeing job turnover and kind of the bureaucracy get filled with new people. Um, I mean, basically, if you live outside of Washington, D.C., um, everybody's a government worker. And nobody really knows at this point, like, is my administration going to get slimmed down? Is our government bureaucracy going to be, you know, like expanding or shrinking? Yeah. It's uh, it's always a crazy time of year post-election before the next inauguration. Uh, people don't really know, like, what their life looks like in a couple of months. But also looking at the people in these in this new cabinet and, frankly, comparing them to the previous one, I just... Business as usual. Not as much, um, but we can get into that later. Yes, we absolutely will. Um, now today we do have a lot to talk about. We're going to start by breezing through some recent controversy around Rogue One, movie casting decisions, and then do a bit on the Trump cabinet position fillings uh, with a bit of a Star Wars spin. Our main topic today, as I previously mentioned, is imperial politics as seen in the new book by James Lucino, Catalyst, A Rogue One Story. This bit of the show does contain spoilers from the book and a good deal of speculation about what Catalyst could mean for Rogue One and some of its Imperial key characters. Now, it's important to note that Catalyst cannot take away from what we see in Rogue One or will see in Rogue One. Uh, It only enriches it with some of the backstory and context. So if you are going to read Catalyst and you want no spoilers, some of this may be a buzzkill for you, and you might want to skip ahead about 30 minutes to when we get to that segment. Um, We won't be talking about the book point for point um, and going over all of its plots. Uh, We will be honing in just on the power dynamic between Tarkin, Krennic, and Vader. And uh, it's a fun chat, so we really, really hope you enjoy it. My last note for you is this is my second show editing and producing uh, since my co-host Tirso departed for a break. Uh, Tirso brought a lot of balance to the conversation (laughs) in uh, keeping things... uh, tight and concise. So this conversation is a little bit more, uh, a little bit more freewheeling and a little bit longer, um, but it is a lot of fun. So with all that said and out of the way, let's talk about the latest in Star Wars news. If you've been anywhere near the internet lately and are looking for Rogue One news in particular, the film has been the subject of political debate uh, around tweets by the production team. Um, This has been 
a hot topic um, on Facebook and Twitter lately. Really enjoyed following it. And we talked uh, about the roots of it uh, a couple weeks ago on our episode, Built on Hope, uh, with Bobby Roberts, where this was starting in the in the after, or I guess in the, the post-election craze. People were kind of getting on the Rogue One train in a different way. But what happened next, Suara? Tell us a little bit about what's going on right now. It sort of goes off of what we were talking about last episode um, as well, because you had Rogue One writer Chris Veitz tweet out um, two tweets. One was explicitly stating how the Empire was a white, quote, white supremacist organization. Um, Obviously, that has some parallels with what's going on and what's being discussed right now. And he tweeted out something else, a logo of the safety pin on a Rebel Alliance insignia. So we had these two tweets. I actually didn't even know about the uh, the first one, about the Empire being a, essentially a white, a white supremacist organization. Um, that one actually went, went right past me. Uh, but they're not up anymore. They were taken down. And that's sort of like the next crux of what this controversy has been. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the executives at Lucasfilm obviously saw this and you know, obviously we're all talking about the extremely sensitive political environment and they don't want to be seen as particularly partisan to which I say, fair enough. You know, you have a film coming out, you want the largest audience possible. You're a business and it's not necessarily good to essentially piss off a pretty vocal political faction right now. I don't know. I guess, I I guess as usual, I'm of two minds of this, but I think, I think I will probably go along with you on this one. The idea of a production team joining in the, um, emoting of, um, post-election blues, um, in tying their feelings to the production of their movie of which there are a lot of stakeholders and a lot of people invested in success. I, I could imagine that that could, um, rattle a couple of people, particularly in the executive level and the folks on the production team who don't want this message to be out there. Now, pointing out that the empire is, I think this is the more inflammatory one. I mean, pointing out that the empire is essentially a white supremacist organization and kind of a wink, wink, nod, nod to uh, Trump voters and and the Trump administration, the incoming Trump administration is... Um, I think it's fair game if you're on CNN. I think it's probably a little bit wobbly if you are in the movie business and you are calling everyone associated with a certain side of the political aisle involved with the white supremacist movement. Because that's not what he said, but it's basically what he implied. Now you had uh, you've had a little bit of writing about it at this point. I mean, the really first big commentary on it came from the Hollywood Reporter. Uh, the Hollywood Reporter, um, which has a history of being a little bit alarmist about this kind of stuff and and a little bit more critical of Lucasfilm and Star Wars and sort of the the success of the movies than I think is actually warranted. But you had this uh, this writer um, or this comm score analyst named Paul Darabikabedian. I think I'm saying his name right. But he said, when you're trying to get a big movie out, you, you want to be as agnostic as possible. You want to be able to appeal to everyone irrespective of their political beliefs. If it's a Michael Moore movie, go for it. Or Dinesh D'Souza, and then your currency is controversy. You're trying to get the base out. It's like the it's the entire motive of like, actually, I am going to run a controversial presidential campaign because I'm going to get my base out, and that's more important than reaching everybody. Uh, and he goes on to say, but if you're producing something for the masses, your currency is not controversy. Um, later, you know, citing like you know Bill O'Reilly, Drudge, and Breitbart, like you 
don't want Rogue One to be the subject of Bill O'Reilly's like rant one night. I mean, it's it 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 may make you feel good if you're someone who doesn't like Bill O'Reilly and you think it's funny, but like you don't want that. If you are behind the movie, you are cringing at that because you are alienating some people. And the que- the question is how much that spreads, not necessarily how much it's warranted. Because the question of whether or not it's warranted will always be, well, oh, come on, well, can't people have their speech and say what they want to say? But if you're involved in a production of a movie, um, that's sort of out the window. It's about what is actually going to do good and do harm for your movie. Um, the other piece that kind of con- or, uh, or shot back at that was from The Atlantic. What did that have to say? Yeah, the title of it is A Deleted Tweet Won't Hurt Rogue One. It's by an author whose name is very easy to pronounce, David Sims. And he says that, you know what, we've had this conversation before with certain films like Ghostbusters, uh, the recent release of Ghostbusters, I mean, and you had... Uh, people criticizing it because it was an all-female cast. You had a bunch of sexists and, quote, men's rights activists, which, why is that a thing? I'll never understand that. Um, You know, like, trolling the actresses, especially Leslie Jones and the crew on Twitter, and trying to derail it. Now, the film did get positive review, or it got sort of middling reviews, and it grossed uh, $230 worldwide, And, you know, not the biggest box office success, you know, it was anticipating, but this article notes there was nothing explicitly political about Ghostbusters. It wasn't looking for controversy. It was just looking to make a fun film, which it was. I saw it. I liked it. It was cultural. It was, was, (laughs) yeah, it was cultural. Exactly. Um, And you even have, with The Force Awakens, you had some white supremacist groups and, again, these quote, men's men's rights activists, why is this a thing, both criticizing the casting of Daisy Ridley and John Boyega. Uh Now, The Force Awakens, as we all know, is the biggest American grossing film of all time, and number three worldwide. So basically, Sims is saying, you know what, yeah, maybe it wasn't the best idea for Vites to uh, tweet these things out, but it's not going to hurt the film. People are still going to look for escapism. They'll draw the parallels if they want to. And indeed, many will draw the parallels from whatever side of the aisle they're on. But this is Star Wars. It, As you said, Stephen, it does not use controversy as its currency. It uses uh, fantasy, escapism, adventure, action, excitement, all these things anyone loves about it. And we're all still going to go see it. And I project a big opening for it. Every every year with a Star Wars movie, we're going to be having these conversations. <laughs> I mean, that's that's essentially what's going to happen. It's like we're going to have these conversations in some way or another every year. And with social media and constant commentary coming from the Internet, the conversations will never end. And then what, what I have said is I'm concerned that over the course of time, not this year, not next year, maybe not the year after that, but Star Wars will have been removed from its pedestal of like this is not a controversial thing. Um, and that over the course of time, fans and, and the country and moviegoers, it will have moved down a peg into like the cultural conversations of the day rather than being above it all, which I think currently it still is above it all. I think I agree with you. It absolutely is still above it all. And I'll disagree with you in that I believe it will remain to be so because this year, as we both know way too well, has been, you know, the most painful mentally 
spiritually painful for the entire country with this. I, you know, I'm being serious, man. Yeah. Like, ah, uh, you know, we just, I would just almost just want to have this inauguration be over with just so we can move past it. As I've said, I'm disappointed with the result, but I accept that he's going to be president. And I accept that we need to move forward together as a country. And Star Wars coming out essentially right after the election and is going to be coming out right around his inauguration because it's so in the public sphere and because one of the most iconic lines from Rogue One is, this is a rebellion, isn't it? I rebel. That is what people are latching on to. And as we discussed in the last episode, people take inspiration from that and they want, uh, let me finish, they want to feel inspired not to necessarily rebel against Trump or the administration, but rebel against maybe this hatred that's engulfing our country, this sense of bad feeling, the dark side, as it were. What were you about to say? Yeah. With the I rebel thing, I mean, basically what would have happened is that this conversation was going to be had on social media with or without Lucasfilm employees chiming in and putting it on their social media and also then taking it a step further to talk about what the empire is in relation to our current politics. This would have happened without spurring from the cast and the crew. So I think in this cases, if you are like a social media manager at Disney or Star Wars or whatever, you're like, you're encouraging everyone, like, just let it happen. Just let it happen. We don't have to spur on a controversy. Let the people do it. And it would have happened um, regardless. We would have gotten to that point. But we did mention um, the controversy around casting. I do want to take us to the next thing. We are in the middle of cabinet appointment season and in the nice spirit, segue i know in the spirit of cabinet appointment season or you could call the casting for the administration <laughs> the cast of characters um uh, han solo cabinet appointment of yes. amelia clark yes um, amelia clark is uh go- <laughs> we don't we don't know what her role is going to be but in the spirit of the Trump administration appointments, let's go over this casting like a good CNN commentator. So, Suara, what does the casting say about the direction of the Han Solo film? And more importantly, is Amelia Clark qualified to hold this job? Full disclosure, I'm a big Game of Thrones fan, and Daenerys Targaryen is my favorite character. I worship Khaleesi. If I were in Game of Thrones, I would immediately rush to her side to be her advisor, warrior, whatever. I'm crazy about the uh, Dragon Queen. And um, I will say, though, I don't think it uh, indicates anything specific about the film mm-hmm. because she has a relatively diverse range. She's acted in movies as the typical love interest or as Sarah Connor in uh, the bad Terminator film. This is one thing I saw a commentator saying, that the films she's been in haven't been good. So we don't really know how good of a film actress she is necessarily. Uh, Collider had some really good coverage of this. <clears throat> Um, yeah, I mean, her character in Game of Thrones is pretty one-dimensional. It doesn't require a whole lot of her acting ability, and that's not on her. I disagree. I mean, it is the character, but come on. Daenerys has many shades of personality, but you said to me earlier that you think she's good when she's sort of more violent, uh, sort of borderline villainous. Yeah, her dark moments are Her dark moments are really good, and I'm inclined to agree with that. So I think... She may not necessarily be playing a love interest for Han, although this is a Han Solo movie. He's going to be surrounded by the ladies. Um, Wonder if she'll be a baddie. She be could be. Cool. She, she could, could be, be a baddie. Yeah. Exactly. Oh my, oh my God, that's perfect. 
Like she'd be the commander of a Starfleet, and it would be the Dragon Starfleet. Oh, it'd be it so would cool. be amazing. <laughs> yes. Now, now, Star Wars, Star Wars castings have been in politics or in the political conversation. Maybe not political, the culture wars conversation a little bit just because of the the diversity problem on the castings. So I actually find myself actually echoing, much to my surprise, um, this sentiment. So another English white brunette. Right. We're getting another one. I think everybody was expecting, and I've, I've just seen a whole lot of this conversation out there, a little bit of surprise that we got another English white brunette as the next Star Wars possibly leading lady. I don't know if that's what she will be. Um, it's speculation that she's the actually leading lady of the movie. But I think folks were expecting something a little bit different. What were your thoughts on that? So I f- always fall on the side of we need the largest diversity and inclusion possible in Star Wars. And thankfully with The Force Awakens, we're starting to get that more, a lot more work still needs to be done. But guess what? You don't just need one female in a <laughs> Star Wars film and fill your quota. Yeah, ideally like you can, there's more, more to come. <laughs> ideally there's more to come. And I was watching a Collider Jedi Council when they were covering this news. Um, Christian Harloff and John Campia said the actresses they were testing before, um, for example, Selma in Creed star Tessa Thompson and Power Rangers star Naomi Scott and Zoe Kravitz, all actresses of color, they could very well still be in the film. They could be the main love interest or main companion to Han. And as we said, Amelia Clark could be playing the villain, an Imperial officer. I'm still I'm hoping for that so much right now. Um, it's not a done conversation that you know you need like a big three or something this is i have a feeling we're not done with casting yet i'm hoping we're not done with casting yet and i just have to see what happens i'm still going to love the film and i think you know it is relatively diverse as well you know with donald glover as lando and amelia clark and whatever lando's set i I mean yeah lando's already set you know we could use some more african-american or uh you know, like other races, ethnicities in the film, but you know, I'm still going to enjoy it. I do hope they become more diverse. That's what I'm hoping for. All right. The next thing that we're going to talk about has been sort of in the main vein of the popular conversation as of late. Um, the Trump cabinet appointments had one that was particularly um, met with a lot of bristle. Uh, the appointment of Steve Bannon, a former chairman of Breitbart, as one of his senior strategists and advisors. Um, second, really only, uh, maybe even just on the same level with Reince Priebus, who will be serving as his chief of staff. Now, Steve Bannon has been in the news for a whole lot of different reasons concerning his background and his ideology. But one of the things that we noticed in the past week that got flagged for us by a couple of listeners on Twitter was this quote that he had um, about the movement that they've that they've built and sort of what is next for the Trump administration. And he mentions Darth Vader in his uh, in his brief quote. And it's there's a lot to chew on in this quote. And I want to share it with y'all. What he said is Dick Cheney, Darth Vader. Satan. That's power. It only helps us when they, presumably the media, get it wrong. When they're blind to who we are and what we are doing. That is a grim quote coming from somebody who's about to work at the highest level of the White House. Dick Cheney leaned into the Darth Vader jokes when he was in the White House in a a funny and jovial way, but this seems like an embrace that's more of a bear hug to being the Darth Vader of the administration, and even referencing Satan. That's power. It only helps us when they are blind to who we are and what we're doing. 
what did you take away from this? Because what I took away was this idea that there is a smokescreen being put out by Bannon and people around him about their intentions and their background that we're missing something and that the media is reporting the wrong thing. What did you take away? I have the exact same thoughts. And I just had a thought. This exact quote is doing that because what it's doing, it's it's meant to scare us. It's meant to think, oh my God, he's talking about Satan, Dick Cheney, Darth Vader, you know, these mm-hmm. figures in history or in mythology that have been so vilified or are the epitome of villains having this conversation, that's what he wants. He wants us as a distraction. And that's what he's been doing throughout Trump's campaign. The media and we liberals or whatever, um, sorry, can we rewind a bit? I don't want to say we liberals. You can just start over your thought. Okay. Starting now. I have the exact same thoughts as you. And I just had another thought right now. This quote is part of that smokescreen. He wants the media, he wants liberals, Republicans, whomever to talk about, oh my God, he's talking about the ultimate villains in history and mythology. What is this guy? What is he doing? Like, But everyone's missing the larger point. This is a distraction. And he's been doing this since the start when he was brought on to the Trump campaign. The media and whomever else talking about the quote, crazy things Trump said, weren't really paying attention to what Bannon was doing. Now, for, clarifi- for clarification, I just want to say I thought he was an awful, awful choice to be brought into the campaign, and much less the White House due to his uh, racist, anti-Semitic, and sexist comments, along with others um, throughout his career. But I have to admit, he's a smart man, and that actually really concerns me. Because he wants to continue the distractions from what he and Trump's campaign and now the Trump administration are generally doing. Mm -hmm. For example, during the campaign, while the media was making such a big deal over the things Trump was saying about Muslims, about China, about climate change, about any of these other issues, the campaign was going out, having these large rallies Uh, meeting with voters with whom they could at least appear to empathize with, Mm -hmm. whom they could convince that they really understood their struggle. This is how Trump won the election in these key swing states with these working class voters who had felt the economy hadn't improved enough for them. And we as a whole essentially ignored that because we thought everything else Trump was doing was, quote, disqualifying while not in the eyes of the American voter who have been able to hoist him up to where he is now. I guess I was most fascinated by the, by the idea when he says that that's power. Darth Vader, right. Satan, Dick Cheney, that's power. Dick Cheney was held up as a vice president who was basically puppeteering the president. I think that that's become a little bit more cartoon rather than an actual level of truth. But the idea that he's going to be incredibly influential and that he views deception as a form of power. I mean, that is, um, that is Sith. <laughs> that is a, and what, no, hold on. But what's, what's more Sith about it even? I mean, it's, if he's going to bear hug Darth Vader, let's call him a Sith for a sec. Um, Sith always tell the truth, you know, to a certain extent, Sith always tell the truth. They tell you what's up. Um, 
And he is sharing a little bit of himself right there in that quote and sharing a little bit of his view on how they're going to govern and how they're going to wield the controls of power. And we saw that with Count Dooku and and Obi-Wan in episode two. He tells him everything. But basically, the weakness of anyone receiving that information is that they're not able to take some things at face value that like a Sith or these Darksiders mean what they say. And he's telling us right now, we're going to do things that we try to hide from you using uh, other smoke screens. And that is that is the Palpatine way. That's the exactly. Sith way. Um, we should know that. And we should be aware of that as we go forward. I was just going to say, if you want to be really genuinely honest, he would have included Palpatine in those figures because that's the one he's acting the most like. Except that he's not you know, in the main position of power himself, but rather an advisory role, which is still extremely influential. So... You know, I'm not saying that he is Palpatine or necessarily that he is, you know, trying to craft some sort of new empire or anything like that. But, you know, we need to be wary. I think he's given us direct insight into how he thinks. And unlike this entire election cycle, we need to take what his administration is saying seriously and not just literally. Yeah, I mean, all administrations engage in deception to a certain extent. Um, but there's a difference between the norms of uh, diversion and then leaning into that in a way that that gives saying that that is power. Exactly. Um, and, and looking at like the most dark side. I'm still there's so much to this quote. I'm chewing on it still. I feel like there's still something that's being missed here. So little thing to the listeners. If you saw this quote, if you have thoughts on it, please do email us. We really want to hear your thoughts on these things so that we can sort of flush this out together as a, as a listener base. We want to know what y'all think as well. So shoot us an email on this quote and what you think he means by this. And we'll talk about it again on the next episode. You can reach us at beltwaybanthas at gmail.com. And uh, we will be sure to read all those on the air and flush it out a little bit more because there's a lot to this that I think that we're still missing in some way. All right. So with all this conversation about basically what's been going on with the administration and the staffing season, and we were just talking about Bannon, a little mention of Priebus. Now, this is internal politics. This is the the politics of a of a new administration getting staffed up. And so Suara and I both finished reading Star Wars Catalyst, a Rogue One story. And that is the new book by James Lucino. It is fantastic. So good. So oh good. my god. So good. Suar, I guess you can't tell. Suara is incredibly jazzed. I am super jazzed as well. Um, I, I just, I mean, we'll just start this off by saying what we're going to talk about is the nature, the political nature of this book, in that we are seeing the internal workings of the Death Star project and the backstabbing plotting and ladder climbing nature of the rat race uh, that is required to make this Death Star fully operational. You have Orson Krennic, who is going to be the played... Best. Yes, who's the, the best. He's going to be played by Ben Mendelsohn in the upcoming movie Rogue One um, as a central character in this book, um, guiding the, the Death Star project. And we'll go into a little bit of the specifics, but what we found most fascinating about this book from a political standpoint was that Tarkin is involved too, but he's not as involved as he wants to be. He wants control of the project. And, I mean, spoiler alert, we all know, based on A New Hope, uh, A New Hope comes around and Tarkin is in command of the Death Star. 
not Director Krennic. So this really sets up that conflict that I think we're going to see come to a head in Rogue One and be resolved by the time A New Hope comes around. So just to start us off, Catalyst. Suara, so I understand you liked it. What did you like the best about it? All of it. It was just amazing. I had What you liked about the book was all of it. Basically, essentially, <laughs> yes. It had all of the aspects of Star Wars I love. It incorporated real-world concepts such as energy development, um, like we said, the political rat race, the uh, internal workings for the Death Star project, the state of the galaxy, um, science, engineering, great, great characters, uh, fully three-dimensional, and Krennic. Oh my God, dude! He's the Frank Underwood of Star Wars. He is. He is a master manipulator. Exactly. Um, he he rose to a certain level of prestige in the course of this book that I just could have never anticipated going in. What I love. So for context, Frank Underwood is the main character in House of Cards. For anyone who may not have watched it, and if you haven't, what are you doing? Um, basically, he's a villain. Essentially, he is extraordinarily ruthless to get. Um, you know, his goals across and it's amazing. It for some reason, I'm drawn to some of these villains like Iago from Othello or Frank Underwood and now Krennic who are master manipulators, know what their goals are, do whatever it takes to get there. And I hope you guys don't think this says anything about me personally. I'm a very ambitious person if I say so myself, but Krennic is extraordinarily charismatic a people person who knows how to play people off of each other and so badass. What I like the most about him in that, in that, in that sense is that he can read the landscape very clearly and he knows who knows who, and he knows who he has to, to work to get to a different person. Um, he can work one person to get to the next person. And that's basically what we're seeing at play with his entire management of the death star project. Um, you know, we've talked a little bit on the past in the show about, you know, who Galen Erso is, uh, Jen's father, and whether or not he was like an abducted scientist, you know, in sort of like a, in sort of a, uh, like a nuclear scientist in the Soviet yeah. era. And that we see in the trailer that Krennic shows up at the Erso household. There is a glare between the two of them, a look of astonishment, and then he's conscripted into service. I think now we know that is the dynamic that is at play here. And, those two are friends. They go back. Back um, to college. Yeah. They go back to college. That's the coolest part about this book is Krennic isn't just a guy who shows up and steals Jen's father away. He's his old college buddy. They were close. They trusted each other at a certain point in their lives, relied on each other for everything. But basically what is going on here is Krennic is an outsider in the Empire. He is not a guy who comes from royalty, prestige, someone like Tarkin with a traditional education and royal background. From Ariadu in the Outer Rim. Yeah. Thanks, Swara. You know it all. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, but Krennic is a upstart. He's come through the engineering program, the Corps of Engineers. And he just came from the world of science and engineering. And he, way up. he's been working his way up through the Clone Wars. And... People do this in, in politics, and people do this in all facets of life, but you have that one friend who you know is a rocket ship, and they're going to be successful, and you're going to ride their coattails in some way, or you're going to stay close to them. And Galen Erso, his buddy from college, he, he knows he has a bright, 
bright future ahead of them. Now, in college, they, of course, were before the Clone Wars. They didn't know what was coming, but he was going to always stay close to Galen because he knew he had something special. Now, things get dark over the course of time, and he's going to tap into that talent in a much different way, and it's very manipulative. So two things. One is uh, back to what you said about Krennic being working class originally. This is, We'll see this in the film because Ben Mendelsohn, Australian actor, keeps his accent for the film. He was wondering at, he was wondering at first oh, should I be proper posh British? But I believe it was the director, Gareth Edwards, told him, no, 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 keep your accent. We want, you know, this new aspect of this imperial villain to come through. And like, yeah, just like we, as we see in the book, he has worked his way up. He is so unlike any of these other uh, imperial officers, especially Tarkin. We hear a lot in the books about accents. I mean, yeah. especially in a lot of the new canon we've read. I mean, and I guess this has always been a thing in Star Wars canon, but when you recognize somebody with that accent, you right. know they're from the Imperial Corps. Um, and what you're saying, Ben Mendelssohn's accent, they kept it a little bit uh, Australian and exactly. raw to basically give him the feel that he is not like the rest of them. And what Krennic, what makes Krennic so special is he knows that. And that shines through in this book, and it's going to probably shine through in the movie. This is a guy with an outsider complex. He didn't come up privileged, prim and proper like every other Imperial who maybe went through the academies. He came a different route, and he's going to slash and burn his way to the top. Um, he goes on a little monologue uh, at some point in the book. He's talking about, you know, first he had the cheap seats next to the emperor. There was a big meeting where the, uh, the imperial hierarchy is getting together to discuss the Death Star project in secret um, away from the Jedi so the Jedi don't find out about it. Masa Media, Masa Media is con- con- conducting the meeting, and he is, uh, Krennic is so proud that he has cheap seats near Masa Media at the front. But that's yeah. what they are. They're like, they're, it's like a seat that he got to first before anyone else could really get to it. But he's going to earn his spot in that higher ranking. And um, I think we know, and I think we know essentially that it is all going to come crashing down for him. We don't know that yet. Okay. We don't have absolute confirmation. I'm holding on to a slim glimmer of hope that Krennic survives. But then what? So, so in the book, what else could happen to him? Because this is probably one of my favorite parts as well. So Tarkin, Tarkin is plotting against Krennic after he really after he finds out that Krennic has been working him too. And we'll talk about the situation that Krennic engineers for Tarkin. But basically, Tarkin has been trying to whisper into the ear of the Emperor and into Masamita and other folks in the hierarchy that Krennic has no business running the Death Star project and that it is above him. I like Tarkin um, less, by the way. Oh, sure. Um, and basically what he wants Krennic to be tasked with is the renovation of the Jedi Temple into a imperial like a conference center resort, which I, I don't think we've uh, we've ever heard that before, that that's what the they're going to turn the Jedi Temple into is like a conference center for imperial hierarchy, um, high level meetings and all that kind of stuff. That's what it's going to be. And Tarkin wants Krennic to be on that project. And Krennic bristles when he finds us out or just boils over when he hears this. I, I just want to say this amazing novel has definitely made me respect Tarkin a lot less. I didn't really have any strong feelings about him before, but seeing how crucial Krennic was to the Death Star project for, since its inception and by bringing Galen Erso on, uh, you know, being essential for the weapon, you know, the most important part of the Death Star, and Tarkin really just coming along and just... Uh, 
you know, having not contributed that much at all from my impression. Just takes it away because of his, sense, takes his sense of entitlement and privilege. His absolute it. sense of entitlement and smugness and lack of respect or regard for everything Krennic has done. I just like, you know what? I'm glad Tarkin got what was coming to him. Uh, now let's say, what has Krennic done? Now, now there's you, there's that fun list on Inverse that you would put up, uh, right. put up on our show notes here. So tell me like one thing Krennic has done that has like, it's been, maybe been horrible, but has really expressed his ability to get this project done that you thought was particularly noteworthy. So there's one particularly noteworthy thing he did. This is a direct spoiler coming from Catalyst. So if you don't want to be spoiled, fast forward maybe two minutes ahead or something. So uh, without notifying his superiors, he built a secret research facility. It ended up exploding and killing 10,000 people. And he blamed the explosion on a made-up rebellion. You know, it was way before, like, the Rebel Alliance was starting to take form. And he showed Galen Erso what had happened and convinced him that it was this made-up rebellion. And in doing so, convinced Galen to work faster on the Kyber Crystal project. Mm -hmm. So the guy is essentially guilty of manslaughter of 10,000 people. And he's like you know what, I'm going to use this to make this guy go faster with the project. You know, I'm just still going to use this to my end. So this is this was my favorite thing, if I may, may hop in there. So what what he did to tie up and distract Tarkin, and maybe you can help me help me clear up what the motive here was. Hmm. Uh, Krennic has a bunch of merchants enlisted to him, uh, merchants and smugglers enlisted in, in work for him that he has do odd jobs. Um, now he's having them move around a lot of materials that are being acquiesced from, from different worlds for the Death Star project. Now, what he has them do is get involved in an uprising on a certain planet. Sa- right. Saline. I think that was it. Saline. I think saline solution is salt water. <laughs> but I think the world was it called. Sounds like a Star Wars I think, planet, yeah, so. the planet of saline, um, is involved in an uprising basically against Tarkin when Tarkin uh, comes to the planet. And they go all out, uh, go out, go, uh, go into all out war against Tarkin and his fleet uh, right outside of the planet. And this is all masterminded by Krennic to tie up Tarkin. And is it to disgrace him? Like, what was the goal here? I was sort of more unclear on that. Um, as you can see, I can't completely leave Krennic blameless, but that's what makes him so awesome. Um, I think it was to distract Tarkin from something he was do from Krennic was doing. Maybe it was also if he got lucky, he would get uh, Tarkin out of the way. Krennic is resourceful. You know, he'll take what he can get. Tarkin dead or just distracted, you know, as long as it works to his ends. Tarkin calls him a devilishly brilliant tactician, and I think what we know uh, from this book at this point is that he is. Uh, that is undeniable. You see, even Tarkin admits it, how awesome he is at getting what he wants to have done. Uh, I actually want to talk about the managerial style of the Empire as exemplified through their rivalry. I remember reading once, I believe it was in Aftermath, the uh, defeated Empire after uh, Battle of Endor was saying, hey, we don't have a dark side figure. Someone said this. We don't have a dark side figure guiding us. We don't have, you know, Palpatine's guidance. And I think we see Palpatine's guidance and leadership at play here. 
remember the code of the Sith that strength like uh or I forget exactly right now. We'll go back. Let me start again. Remember the code of the Sith. You know, it's all about absolute power for oneself and outdoing your enemies and your rivals. I you can see clearly throughout Palpatine's empire how he constantly had these officers play off against each other and thus would create a stronger empire. And they lost that with the destruction, with their defeat at Endor. This is the Trump style of management. Um, they were talking about this just the other week on Political Gabfest, and Emily Bazelon, oh, your girl, true, yeah. was talking about this. This is how Trump manages people. Um, it is a uh, a... a claw your way to the top environment around him and he actually encourages that conflict that's why you see this the the veep stakes and the cabinet battles just as like angry and visceral as they've ever been and pouring out into the media and into the public sphere this is kind of how he works this is the apprentice in real life um and i i I make that tie-in just because this is beltway bathas and that's (laughs) that's how we think about this stuff but what you see on the apprentice of two people almost in like an arena fighting for the glory of their master is exactly what you see here at play in the empire. It's the management style of creating conflict so that the stronger person rises to the top. Now the other person doesn't necessarily have to be killed or removed, but they will become subservient to the one that is truly better. And it is not going to be always a merit based system, but it's going to be who can get stuff done and push other weaker people down. And that is what we see in the empire. And if you look into the commentary on the Trump administration, the apprentice, and also the way that Trump has run his personal businesses, this is something you can see actively in real life right now. That is a very fair point. Although I will just say one thing. One is that Palpatine, or Uncle Palpy, as we like to call him, does it in a much more, I would say, subtle, more manipulative way. And... I don't think Trump is, full disclaimer, I personally don't think Trump is anywhere near as brilliant as Uncle Palpy. I think that's beside the point. Um, It's not about who is more subtle or nuanced about it. I mean, you're talking about a scripted movie character versus someone in real life who is a little bit larger in life and personality. This is a management style thing. This is not something that you see in all places. Um, There are certain work environments where this kind of thing is completely unacceptable, where it is counterproductive and a waste of resources for two officers to be fighting against each other. And I mean, Krennic basically creates a rebellion under Tarkin's watch to undermine him, and that is Imperial resources. That's soldiers. That's TIE fighters. That is guns and ammo that are wasted, um, or probably not even viewed as wasted. It's just used as part of the power process in working your way through the Empire. I'm not convinced that the Emperor would look at what Krennic did and say, shame on you. I think what he would do is say, shame on you, Tarkin, for not being able to win on this situation. He bested you. And the Empire doesn't care about waste of resources. It's about who will win. And he likes winners, okay? Palpatine (laughs) wants winners around him, and he gets one. Plug in for Emperor Trumpetine here, by the way. Um, no, I agree. I mean, he would have like absolutely appraised Krennic for his master brilliance and manipulation of the situation to get ahead and would have scolded Tarkin for not being smart enough and for thinking 10 moves ahead. 
uh, yeah, like Palpatine cares about power. He his most valuable resource is powerful and intelligent and manipulative individuals in his empire. And one could make an argument almost that if Krennic had been the one to completely oversee the Death Star project because of Palpatine's managerial style, and if Tarkin hadn't somehow, maybe as we'll see, outdone him to get to the top of the food chain, then who knows, maybe the Rebels wouldn't have won. Maybe this managerial style, if carried out to its fullest extent, would have, you know, erected a force that the Rebels couldn't break through. There would have been no exhaust port. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you're in an environment where there basically is zero accountability. There's just only power. And if everyone's not working towards a common goal, you end up with this, these glaring cracks, because if there's an imperial officer who thinks that they have something to gain by, by making another army or another fleet vulnerable, just so that he can benefit, you lose the war. You can't, you can't win a war that way or govern that way. And to governance, I, I will always be concerned until I am proven wrong that there's going to be a live live performance of The Apprentice going on in DC every oh, week. God. I mean, I just I I just feel that um, that that's sort of the environment that Donald Trump believes in, and I I don't necessarily mean that to be an attack or a slam. I think it's just sort of a statement of fact, and we have to figure out like what that means for the kind of government we have. I think the Obama administration has had tensions. Um, the Bush administration had tensions, but it was still relatively homogeneous right. where there were tensions playing out between like Hundleiza Rice and Donald Rumsfeld and Colin um, Powell. And Colin Powell. There, but, but there was not a um, – what's, what's, they were still united in what they were doing. It was how they were going to do it that was the problem. I think what you're going to end up with in this administration having is people who don't agree on what they're doing and, and then can't ever get around to getting anything done the way they like to do. And some people might view that as a good thing if they can't agree on how to get right. things done. It's, it's good to have competing voices. It's good to have a vast array of different views. But what Trump is doing with this new cabinet is bringing in people who have never met each other before or associated with each other before or have even the basis same ideas and in my view even people who are not qual- necessarily qualified for the positions they're fi- gonna, going to fill and they're supposed to be the new administration. I genuinely predict a, uh, administ- a large degree of ineptitude because of this a gridlock, as it were, uh, taking place in the White House. And I don't know what that's going to look like. I can only hope that it won't be damaging. I only hope that, you know, we just got to see. All right. Well, let's pivot back here to the book. Uh, I'm sorry <laughs> yeah. for that fun little uh, fun little sidebar. But Masamita gets a lot of good airtime in this book. And I say airtime because I always listen to the audiobooks, which <laughs> are not for children, Suara. They're fun. I actually read, guys. No, I'm just kidding. Audiobooks are great. But, Audiobooks. Steve, but, but Steven's still a kid. So I want to I make a pitch for the audiobook here real quick. <laughs> in that they, I, I keep telling everybody this, the audiobook for Catalyst, one really good reason to get it is that the voice acting for 
director Krennic and er- Galen Erso are very true to nice. the actors. Nice. Um, I, I think that that is obviously by design. There is a lot of similarity there. Um, in the voices that Krennic has an Australian accent, right? It doesn't shine through. It it, it is there, but it doesn't shine through. It's a lot in, in, in a lot in the way that he sort of finishes some of his words and his sentences when he's getting a little bit excited. (laughs) By the way, by the way, just to segue a little bit, I could, the way, um, Galen Ursa was written in this book, I could perfectly imagine Maz Mikkelsen playing him. Oh, it's going to be, it's going to be brilliant. It's going to be absolutely Um, brilliant. I tried to start us on Masamita, but Masamita, yeah. we've had an entire episode in the past about him and the role that he plays in the Empire, and it's basically, we kind of assigned to him the chief of staff role for the Emperor. And that stays pretty true in this book, the, the picture that he's mediating a lot of conflict. He is guiding the projects and representing the Emperor in a lot of meetings that the Emperor is not actually going to attend. But he manages the bureaucracy, and so if you want to get close to the Emperor, you need to get the will and the openness of Masamita to do that. Um, yeah. man, what an exhausting job you must have to try and corral like, all of these pit bulls who are all fighting, fighting for the emperor's attention. Yeah. He's the guy who basically controls it. Honestly, my impression of him, he's a bit of a stooge. It seems yeah. like he's just like doing what uncle Palpy says, like, do this, make sure this guy isn't, you know, out doing this one or that, you know, the things are still on schedule and he doesn't really seem to have any cohesive ideals or, uh, goals for himself. I think the only goal he has is just to stay within the emperor's good favor. Tarkin it's even the... says that he gets off on licking the emperor's oh boots. My... Yes, yes, yeah. That was... <laughs> Mic drop on Masamita there. Wait, yeah. But I think that that does say something. That, I mean, maybe Masamita, maybe he's not that that smart. I, mean, I, he, I don't he think might... he's that smart. He just has a great big voice, like order. We shall have order. And other than that, he doesn't really do any manipulating himself. He's just, like, the dullest bureaucrat you could have. And as uh, you guys were talking about before, about the propaganda book by Pablo Hidalgo, you guys should go read it. Um, He puts himself... One thing noteworthy he does is puts himself in an ad for solidarity and unity between all races and he got flack for it because he put himself in it it seems like the only thing Masamita <laughs> cares about is having people respect him and thus he's more than willing just to be a stew just to be a tool for mm-hmm. people to observe and look at rather than trying to exert any real influence on his own with any of his real goals or ideals so I don't really like him as a character I find him really bland yeah there's that question uh, out there about whether or not Masamita uh, was working with Palpatine throughout Phantom Menace uh, against Valorum or if he just immediately just kind of hopped over to to the, the new to the new administration and basically threw himself down for Palpatine when he became powerful. I I'm not fully convinced that he was ever in sort of any conspiracy against Valorum. I think yeah. he just sort of goes where the wind blows. Exactly. And when the wind blew to Palpatine, he just latched on and he is not going to let go. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and that's for a lot of people, that's how you rise to the top unless you're Chris Christie. Is Massimita the Christie in the situation or no, 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 there is no parallel there. Well, I mean, well, I mean, Chris Christie as the uh, as the neutered dog standing behind Trump throughout all those speeches. Okay, there that, we go. That there might, we go. That might be that might be more on uh, the Masamita figure. But Chris Christie has lost the Hunger Games or the Game yep. of Thrones, as you would. Move along. Move along. So with this book, what we 
what I was really fascinated by was this this tweet by Pablo Hidalgo the other day mm, about this, yeah. the importance of rewatching the Imperial boardroom scene. Well, this is more in regards to Rogue One. Yeah, but this is directly tied to implications that are in in uh, Catalyst. Right. So, what his tweet was was that if you want to be fully prepared for Rogue One here next month, be sure to go back and watch the scene in A New Hope where all the Imperial officers are sitting around the boardroom table and discussing the nature of the rebel threat and what the power of the Death Star means. And there's been a lot said about the empty chair in the room, whether or not that could be Krennic's empty chair, or if Krennic the entire time was always meant for the hot, the tall chair that Tarkin is sitting in and Tarkin being to I think I think that's probably the right answer. But... It is related to Catalyst and that Catalyst is setting up the power structure that we see at play in Rogue One. And what we know from Rogue One is that Darth Vader is going to be there overseeing the last bit of that project. Um, Darth Vader is an ally of Tarkin at this point. If you go back and read James Lucino's Tarkin, Tarkin and Vader are not friends. Tarkin um, thinks of Vader as a little bit more of a mysterious uh, drone, Mm -hmm. and Vader doesn't trust Tarkin or like him. Uh, But what happens is they go out on a mission together that the Emperor assigns to them specifically for bonding. I mean, he assigns he assigns them on a mission together so that they can work it out, figure out the power dynamic, because, again, and I think Vader, you know, Tarkin says this to himself, neither one of them is higher than the other one. There is no hierarchy between Vader and Tarkin. They are equals, but who commands who is a big question. Can Vader give him an order? The answer is no, but if he did give him an order, should he listen? Um, so they work this out in Tarkin in the book, and what you see in Catalyst, or I'm sorry, what you're going to see in Rogue One, is Vader is going to oversee this project now and breathe down Krennic's neck. And I think you have every reason to believe after finishing Catalyst that he's being sent to do that by Tarkin. Tarkin is leveraging his now positive relationship with Darth Vader to go work over his rival. And they both acknowledge that Krennic is the overly ambitious rival who needs to be taken down a peg. So Tarkin is holding Vader's leash, as it were. (laughs) Thank you, Leia, for that very apt description in episode four. Um, yeah, it's, uh, fascinating. I didn't know that about Tarkin. I need to go back and read that. Have you, have you read that book yet? I I haven't read it yet. So, so back, so back to what you said, uh, they, Emperor Palpatine sent them on a mission together. Did they wear their get along (laughs) t-shirt? They sang the friends song by the end. Good. Yes. Excellent. Um, so with the Pablo Hidalgo tweet though, I mean, what did, was I missing something there that wasn't really related to Catalyst? Like what, what do you think is he, is he telling us about the importance of this scene? Cause there's a lot of power dynamics going around, going on at that table. I don't, well, for one thing, I don't, even though everyone, you guys should really should read Catalyst. I don't think Pablo or the story group expects everyone who's going to see Rogue One is going to read the book. So he was definitely on, on social media, speaking of the wider movie going audience. And I think he's referring to something specifically that'll happen in Rogue, that'll happen in Rogue One. Uh, probably some battle that um, I believe it was uh, Adm- yeah, Admiral Tagge, um, wh- whose uh, Starfleet was either threatened or attacked by rebels. Vulnerable. Yeah. Vulnerable. Yeah. Vulnerable to your Starfleet commander, not, not to this, this battle station. station. Oh, what if Tarkin has something to do with the theft of the plans? 
What uh, that could be huge to undercut Krennic to undercut Krennic because Vader. All right, so we've talked about in the past like Vader might have let the plans get away so he could use it to find the rebels. That's a pretty straightforward plan. I don't know if that is official and canon. I think it was in one of the comics, wasn't it? That the Emperor was frustrated with Darth Vader yes, because in the Darth Vader because comic. he like let the let the plans get away. Thinking that it would lead him to the rebellion, so he could crush them. Right. He was frustrated overall, more so that you know the Death Star was blown up. Yeah. Not necessarily that it was just the plans, but that Vader had failed in the defense of the station. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah. I think this power dynamic between Tarkin, Vader, and Krennic, and the fact He's that Vader and Tarkin are in league with each other, presumably, that the disappearance of the plans. Maybe the rebels get through at the grace of somebody in the Empire who's just trying to get control of that project. The theft of the plans could be the thing that does in does in Krennic. And if you're Tarkin, that might not be out of the question. You, that that you, would be particularly shocking, honestly. I think. But that's the twist that this could have. Twist, yeah. That would be fantastic. I I, I think. Hmm. Yeah, we don't really see anything from Tarkin in episode four talking about the theft of the plans or he, all he said was that, you know, Darth Vader will get the plans back to concern Imperial Council. He didn't really, you're right, he didn't really seem like up in arms about the plans being stolen as others did. So no one would suspect that he had anything to do with their disappearance. I want to go back to something I said earlier about, <laughs> um, you know, you know, if Tarkin had simply let Krennic win, then maybe... No, it's still the Emperor's overall strategy of having his uh, people play against each other. And if this is right, then that strategy is completely undercut. And Palpatine, through his master manipulation, is the master of his own undoing. As the dark side is, through a short term or long term, always going to consume the user one way or the other. So that would be a fascinating twist. I think that is our impromptu crackpot or jackpot. <laughs> I say jackpot. I, I, I got to wonder if the rebels are going to be successful because they have hope or if we're going to kind of go back to something that we've seen in Star Wars before, kind of a bad guy throws them a bone thinking that they can have a bet or like they, they're going to put their bet on like I'm going to give them this so that I can get something bigger. And Maybe they get away with it because of Tarkin. <laughs> That's pretty much all the time we have for for our main topic today, which is Tarkin v. Krennic uh, and the nature of their relationship as we see in Catalyst. Um, Swar, any closing thoughts? You got everything out you want on the power dynamic between these two prolific uh, Imperial officers? Nothing except Krennic is awesome. Krennic is awesome. I'm a huge fan of Ben Mendelsohn, the actor, based on his performance in a Netflix series called Bloodline, where he plays a black sheep mm-hmm. brother with a huge attitude problem. Nice. And you can see just how dark in that series on Netflix nice. um, Ben Mendelsohn can get, and I think we're going to see that. So uh, with that, we're going to transition to listener email, which we've got one here from our friend Ross Brown. Ross writes, Howdy. First, thanks again for the effective propaganda book pitch. Well, you're welcome, Ross. We actually really, really enjoyed that book. Um, Second, he says, here's my question for the show today with apologies if it's been previously asked or discussed. In The Force Awakens, the First Order blows up Hosnian Prime along with the Senate. In an empire, taking out the seat of government with the ruling power would be a crippling blow, a la the Death Star. But in a republic, the strength arises from its members. While the Republic's bureaucracy may have taken a hit, and each member may have lost its senatorial delegation, 
Did the act of blowing up Hosnian Prime really signify the, quote, end of the Republic, as General Hux cowed, when all the member planets still remain, minus the Hosnian system? Can't the Republic just reform elsewhere? Have a great recording session and rest of the day. Well, thank you, Ross. Thank you, so, Ross. So I think the answer to that question is yes, it still carries on, and General Hux is being a, uh, what's the word, a little grandiose. Uh, little grandiose. He's giving a fiery speech. He's a little bit loony. Let's be real here. Um, <laughs> that, you see those eyes? You see those eyes? You see the spit coming out of his mouth? <laughs> I, think, uh, I think he was giving a pretty fiery speech and ginning people up for the next stage of the conflict, not the actual end of the Republic. Um, what we know about democracy and about a government that this big is you can't just blow it up um, with a single laser blast to the Capitol. Um, I mean, I'm even watching you know this series with Kiefer Sutherland on yeah. on TV right now, Designated Survivor, where a bomb takes out the entire Congress, entire Congress minus one, and the entire presidential cabinet minus one, and the institution survives because the institution is prepared for these things. Um, and I don't know if we have a constitution in the new Republic, I would bet that we do. And they probably have a system in place for if people die, if people are put out of place preliminarily or, or before their time, there's a system in place to appoint new people. So yeah, again, I think he pretty much answers his own question there, which is that there are member worlds. And if you just kill a bunch of representatives, uh, who happen to be on the Hosnian prime system, they, they'll just appoint someone else. Um, but there will be chaos, and there will also be a huge power scramble if the Republic is not healthy. I think what we know from Bloodline is the Republic is not healthy. Um, it's very divided, and there are people in the Republic who don't believe in what they're doing. So if you have First Order sympathizers who are part of the Republic and they haven't defected at this point, I think there's a serious risk there, but I to, to answer that lengthily, I think, yeah, the Republic is fine, and we're going to see that in Episode 8 as they militarize to now face the threat. I agree that the Republic is fine as an institution for all the reasons you just listed, but I don't think they have... They don't have a Starfleet. They don't have an army. They were explicitly res- relying on the Resistance to fight their battles for them. So it is still an, ex- an extremely vulnerable state, and... As you said, there's that power vacuum. You had first order sympathizers, and the galaxy will still be in chaos, but the Republic will still be there. They're not uh, mutually exclusive. So, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for your email, Ross. We really appreciate that. So, moving on to our Bantha Fodder segment. Our Bantha Fodder segment is a little uh, portion of the end of the show where we can, real quick, talk interrupted about one thing that's been on our mind, our hearts, whatever this week. And uh, share that with you. So, Swara, kick us off. What's your bantha fodder this week? <sighs> I wish I had like a more optimistic bantha fodder, but and ironically, it's about something in Star Wars, not the real world. Go figure. Rebels. So, I love Star Wars Rebels. I think seasons one and two really hit it out of the park. It just you got great characters, great stories, great um, additions to the mythology. But this season, we're eight episodes in out of 22 episodes, has been really lackluster for me. You had a really a couple of really good episodes with Hera, Sabine, and the season starter. But the last couple of episodes, three episodes, I have been so disappointed by. It is not up to its usual standard of storytelling. And 
um, John Campia of Collider Jedi Council mentioned in his review that they had set up maybe four or five primary storylines for this season alone, and they haven't tackled any of them in the past three episodes. He is exactly on point. We're just, you know, I hate using the term filler because, again, this is someone else from Collider who said that, Perry Nimroff. Like, nothing should be filler. It should be an essential part of the story and the season. But these episodes have just been completely throwaway. Now, I just want to say, I know Rebels is a kid's show. I know you got to have those fun moments in there. But the thing is, they're not even that good. I don't know what's going on. I know that Dave Filoni has a different role. Now he's executive producer. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if something's changed with the writing group. but And, oh, I just got to say, Thrawn? Really been underwhelming to me so far. I know he's awesome. I grew up knowing of Thrawn, even though I didn't read the novels. And I was really excited. But if they continue using him so sparingly and frankly lamely as they have just letting the rebels get away i think three times now during the season i'll start to wish they hadn't used him at all that said i'm still hopeful for the rest of the season you know i think still 14 more episodes but i just gotta say in its execution of its first half it's been really disappointing and i really hope you get back on track rebels so that's my bantha fodder Steven, what's your fodder? So I've been thinking over the past couple of days and a couple of different things, and they, they all lined up today quite nicely, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell that story. So with – we talked a little bit about Steve Bannon earlier, and we and, – and pretty much the whole country right now is talking about this alt-right thing. Um, which is a you know a, a nice soft term for a new shiny white supremacist movement um, that you know has come out of the internet and and weird corners of uh, of subreddits and all that crap and you know now they're actually coming out of the shadows a little bit and trying to rebrand themselves in some sort of shiny way so this has been a thing that has existed um, right of center you know talking about the political spectrum. And I've struggled with this, and a lot of people I've talked to have struggled with this because, you know, like we've worked in conservative politics our our you know whole lives. I, I've been a volunteer in this stuff, and then working on it since I was sixteen. And I've never met any of these people. I don't know who they are. Um, I've never met in my life a professionalized white supremacist, um, and who, who call themselves the alt right. Um, this is this is such a strange emergence, uh, in my mind. And it's so unsettling, um, with, and it's just incredibly unsettling again, because it comes from the right of center. So you have to acknowledge it. And I've been trying to do my reading and do my studying over the past couple of days, um, about what they are and who this Richard Spencer guy is, who is leading the new white nationalist movement. I mean, he's a young, young guy, hipster haircut, wears pea coats, stuff like that. He looks like anyone who you, I might hang out with on a day-to-day basis. I mean, it's just he looks like anyone else. And the media is making a big thing about that. Like, oh, I didn't know like white supremacists could wear a suit and a tie. I thought they had to be like hillbillies or something like that. And like, no, like, let's be real. This happens every couple of decades. This movement 
comes out again and rebrands itself as an intellectual movement rather than just a movement based on bigotry and hate. It's, it's something else. Um, and we shouldn't be tricked by that. Now, the next day, um, Fidel Castro died. Okay. And I'll, I'll kind of get where I'm going with this. Fidel Castro died. And my timeline, my Facebook timeline was this split between, uh, People on the right going, hooray, he's dead, uh, tyrant is gone, blah, 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 the witch is dead. And then people on the left who, and this is probably the majority of my friends list because that's just kind of the life that I've led, is expl- expressing confusion at the accusation that they are, um, that they are, uh, expressing confusion at the accusation by folks on the right that they are sympathetic towards Fidel Castro and what he did. And, you know, you saw this with Justin Trudeau, the Mm -hmm. Canadian prime minister, and his misstep on his offering condolences to the people of Cuba as if, like, the guy wasn't a monster. And so what what I saw was that there are a lot of mainstream liberals and Democrats who they don't recognize that there are people on the left who are... Uh, incredibly warm to Fidel Castro and his legacy, because that's not who they are. They don't have warm feelings about communism, internment camps, and mass eliminations of people who don't fit into some sort of new order that ca- that Fidel Castro ushered in after the Cuban Revolution. That's not why they're liberals. That's not why they're Democrats. And so there was, I just, I'd never seen this before. There was just so much confusion uh, expressed on social media that uh, they're being lumped in with this guy, and I, I resonated with. It. I felt like I felt with, I felt how they feel in a lot of ways. This confusion about the fringes of your political ideology, like this isn't who I am. Why are people saying this is who I am? Um, and then I went to church this morning, and the sermon was about take the beam out of your own eye, and that is what I've been thinking about for the past couple of days. Is we don't we don't focus on our side enough policing our ideologies, policing our political factions, weeding things out. If you are always criticizing the other side for something, being tyrannical, you know, believing in things like internment camps and, and you, know, ethnic, you know, ethnic genocide, like look at your own side too. Everyone has a history at this point. Every side of the political ideology has a history with these problems and we have to acknowledge them. And before we clean our own house out, know our history um, the other side's not going to be receptive to what you're saying about them. So I'm taking a real effort uh, now to really understand like who this Richard Spencer guy is, who this Steve Bannon guy is, what Breitbart is, what the alt-right is, um, to work against it, because I've never heard of it. Um, so that's my thing. You know, it's, it's remove the beam from your own eye, because otherwise no one will listen to you. We've got to give him more time. That is all the time we have for our show this week. This has been a pretty full plate, and this has been a lot of fun. Swara? Fun. Uh, Imperial Officers. Uh, So we are really excited about Rogue One coming up. Um, Our next episode, we are going to talk about rebellions and how they form. uh, Real life. Uh, what Saw Gerrera means, and how basically we can learn from rebellions in real life and revolutions in real life uh, a little bit about what we're going to see transpire in Rogue One. So we're going to be getting to work on that in the next week or so. Uh, in the meantime, you can connect with us on Twitter at Beltway Banthas and myself at Steven underscore Kent 89. Swara, where can people find you? 
You can find me on Twitter at SwaraSaleh1, S-W-A-R-A-S-A-L-I-H-1. And you can find some of my writing on Huffington Post and Newsweek. As well, you can also shoot us an email at beltwaybanthas at gmail.com. We love getting your thoughts on political issues of the day or Star Wars politics, and we will discuss it here on the show. And you can find us on Facebook as well, and we look forward to getting connected with you. Folks, thanks for listening to Beltway Banthas, and we'll see you the week after next. May the force be with you. Laugh it up, fuzzball.